Stacy who, Joe? Stacy Dogan at Boston <laughs> University, a, a premier trademark uh, law professor and legal theorist. Well, thank you. Trademark law is much better for Stacy being being a part of it, although it still does seem to be going hog wild in various different directions. Christian and I frequently call trademark the, the one indispensable IP uh, form. <laughs> trademark law is very important to us, Stacy, because it is the it is like the glue that keeps us from spinning apart. Because of course, I think patent should be abolished. Uh, I think patent should be abolished, and Joe thinks, well, he teaches patent. He doesn't. He, <laughs> so and I don't want it to turn into. I don't want it to turn into legal history. No, copyright shouldn't be abolished. It should. The period should be much, much, much shorter, though. We agree yeah. on that. Yeah. So, but, I think we can all agree on that. But trademark is the one doctrine in IP that makes sense. You know, from it, you got to have it in its current form. Uh, see, I'm not expert, so I, I defer to you and Joe on on the necessary innovations. No, it's interesting. I mean, I you know, th- this is another project of mine that um, maybe we can talk about a little bit later. But um, there's actually been a lot of debate over the last couple of decades about whether trademark law um, is appropriately defined, what its purposes are, uh, why we have it, and whether it's promoting um, socially valuable goals. So, you know, one of the nice things about trademark law is that um, and, and, you know, this is the, the theory underlying um, much of contemporary trademark law. It allows for clarity of information in the marketplace. Um, it gives us confidence that products that we're purchasing bearing a trademark come from the, the same firm or, um, you know, a, a party that's merged with that firm or, or purchased um the firm. Uh, we have some confidence that the products are going to have the same qualities um, that we've come to expect from products bearing that mark. But it has a lot of other side effects too. Um, you know, Barton Beebe has written about this, about the fact that in in um, in a sense, trademark law has come to substitute for other forms of social hierarchy. Um, so. Uh, rather than simply giving us information about the source of products or services, trademarks start to serve as um, products in and of themselves. People want to buy uh, products bearing fancy trademarks in order to distinguish themselves from um, from from other people um, and make them feel, in some sense, superior. So it has a lot of kind of consequences that are not necessarily intended. Is that his new sumptuary code? Is that his paper, like trademark in the new yeah. sumptuary code or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's, it, 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 it's not so new anymore, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's the sumptuary code piece. And, um, you know, it's interesting. It's an interesting, um, in, yeah. uh, you know, I, I don't, I think it's tricky to think about, whether there are any ways to whether whether there are ways of protecting um, the good sides of trademark, sort of using the law to promote the goals that we all can agree upon, while um, you know reducing or softening some of um, some of its effects. I think um, you know the dilution laws, for example, um, arguably exacerbate those. Right. Um, those effects, but, um, but it's, it's, so, so I would, I would agree with you that some form of trademark law, we can, I think everyone can agree is, is worthy, um, of preserving. Um, but around the margins, it becomes interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, the dilution and the tarnishment, those seem like the junky parts of trademark law. 
like that, you know, that, that aren't completely tied to consumer confusion. Um, that, that, but it's interesting. I hadn't thought about the, you know, so I don't know what this paper is that you guys are talking about. Um, but I, is it, a, is the idea about like, you know, that one thing trademark does is it gives kind of, it, it gives, hmm, um, it gives people something to rep, you know, like people want to rep a brand, right. And trademark law yeah. creates and protects a brand. And so it creates a valuable space around which other people gather. And that has like f- financial value to the person who holds the mark that people yeah. rep. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the current project that I'm working on that, you know, I've been working on forever and ever and ever. And if I ever get this written, it'll be, um, a wonder, but it, it, um, it argues that, um, while many scholars, including myself have argued in recent years, that trademark law should be primarily about preventing harm in the sense of, um, avoiding misinformation, um, in markets that can harm consumers. This, this is like, I go into the grocery store and I pick up a box of fruit loops, but you know, because I didn't check with the grocer about where they got it from and all that, I, it turns out that it's not the fruit loops I thought it was. That's right. That's right. That's the kind of traditional core of trademark laws sort of protecting against confusion as to source that can hurt consumers, it can hurt, um, you know, the trademark holder because they lose uh, customers as a result of deception. Um, But, um, you know, there's a way in which trademark law has always had a complementary thread uh, that protects trademark holders against um, free riding, against people who want to kind of take advantage of that trademark holder's reputation um, without having made the investment that the trademark holder made in developing um, its uh, goodwill. Um, And this is more, this is less focused on harm. It's more focused on sort of preserving the benefits associated with the trademark for the trademark holder. Um, And trademark holders are, um, very, if you feel viscerally attached to this um, version of trademark law, that of course we've invested all this money in developing our goodwill and we should be entitled to all of the proceeds um, from that. Um, so like sports teams are a good yeah. example. Um, you know, they feel like um, all of the goodwill associated with our team brand, our team name, um, it should should belong to us and other people shouldn't be allowed to sell t-shirts or hats or merchandise or even shirts that make fun of us uh, without giving us a cut. Well, I'd be willing to agree, I think, that um, everyone who contributed to the value's existence uh, should uh, participate in in owning that value in this context. The, the, the problem... Why? W- well, w- if you, let, let yeah. me finish. Classically, you didn't. Um, uh, so, so I think the, the, the thing where I would disagree with the, those, uh, the most obvious trademark owners um, is that they're not the only ones who created that value. Um, yep. and, and it's actually interesting because it relates to the Barton Beebe point about the sumptuary code and the reason why I think you probably can't get the second issue you mentioned without uh, once you start doing the first, once you start creating an information resource uh, for, for source indicators, um, is because we are the partial creators of all that meaning. It doesn't, that doesn't work as a language if we don't help make it work, if we don't believe in it um, yep. and, and use it. And so, um, yeah, sports team. The people who create the value in it should get to have a big say in how that value gets deployed. 
I'm one of those people if I'm one of the fans. So I get to have a say in how it gets deployed. You know, we agree on one part of the story, just not the other part. They would like to, I think, uh, mislead us into believing we weren't a big part of how that thing uh, exists and comes to have the value that it has. But we are. This is your Santa Claus theory of trademark, that it, its value comes from people believing in it. <laughs> it's not just my theory. It's, it's a slave um, run on it, Christmas spirit. I mean, in a sense, it's it's the, the courts have pointed this out many times in the context of of, of trademark uh, fair use and parody cases that that um, the the consuming public gets the, the trademark owners succeed in convincing us to make this meaning and start using this meaning in ours as part of our vocabulary, and then get all bent that we're speaking in a way they don't like, right? And yeah. the, the the point before about, you know, can you avoid the sumptuary code features of this? What, what does this mean, sumptuary code? The, well, the sumptuary code is a reference to the old codes about the f- forms of dress that people were and were not permitted to wear based on their social class. It used to be illegal to wear clothing that was not fitted to your actual social class. Yeah, this wouldn't um, have worked well for me. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the um, I, I think... In, in the same way that, that language has class uh, con- uh, class inflections, right? You, you can hear uh, differences right, in the right. way people speak, the words they use, the way they pronounce them, uh, and, and that can be both unintentional or intentional. Uh, you know, newscasters and the sort of um, Connecticut Valley received pronunciation accent and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think for the same reason that just language itself – winds up doing that stuff, say, oh, I wish it were just about information. I wish it weren't about social class. Well, you know, sorry to disappoint you, but yeah. uh, it, it does become a manifestation of social class. And, and I think trademarks, the same thing winds up happening. So this is having brands yeah. and things. But I was going to ask both of you, though, that, that when I said why a little bit earlier, so I, I was kind of questioning the premise that you started from. So why is it that value creators should of trade, I, yeah, I, yeah, go I'm ahead. really glad. I'm really glad you asked that question because um, I'm not sure that um, I necessarily agree. I agree as a descriptive matter that the, the courts are doing this. Trademark holders certainly feel entitled to the value, but you know there are different ways of of looking at the purpose of trademark law. Um, if you take kind of a utilitarian approach that says, okay, let's try to find outcomes that on balance are the best for society as a whole, that that sort of enhance consumer welfare as a whole, uh, it's not entirely clear that you would always give all of the rewards to the trademark holder. Um, but it turns out that courts are very sympathetic to more of a um, just desserts um, approach, uh, more of a kind of Lockean approach that says, look, people have invested their resources in developing the value of this brand and they and only they should be entitled to their rewards. Um, but, but that, um, and, and I don't necessarily agree with that, but I think it's a reality that we have to, to confront. Um, and that, you know, the final piece of this long-term project that I'm working on, and the, I think the most important piece is that even given that reality, that the courts um, sort of emotionally respond to this appeal by the trademark holders. They also listen when uh, defendants in these cases um, have persuasive justifications for what they are, um, for what they're doing. And Joe pointed out the parody cases, um, you know, 20 years ago, the courts actually um, hadn't um, really 
informed themselves yet, hadn't hadn't opened their minds to the importance of parity. Um, and a lot of cases involving trademark parity uh, were decided in favor of the trademark holder. But that's really changed um, in the last couple decades. Yep. And it's because of effective advocacy that has persuaded courts of the social value of this form of speech. And so, you know, the most important point that I'm, I'm someday going to make in this article that may someday <laughs> be finished and published, but is that, um, you know, I think um, that while it's it's worth continuing to push back, um, as you are doing, Christian, on the, the sort of the normative uh, rationale for trademark law, that that we have to turn our attention to articulating um, these justifications, articulating the value of some of these unauthorized uses and why um, they have um, social value. Now, Stacey, were the, were the earlier comparative advertising cases, things like Smith against Chanel yeah. uh, and the Supreme Court's Saxlaner case, the bitter water case that Smith yep. against Chanel talks about at length, uh, would you categorize those as earlier instances where the courts correctly perceived the benefit being articulated by the defendant? What, what was going on in those cases, roughly? Let me let me hear what she says, and then I'll describe them. That's <laughs> <laughs> an interesting order. These are cases in which um, uh, defendants use trademarks to call attention to competing products um, in truthful ways, but in ways that clearly, you know, threaten um, the profits of the trademark holder. So the Chanel case, um, I think, is the best example of this. This this case involved um, a knockoff. Uh, perfume manufacturer who manufactured uh, perfumes that were imitations of famous branded perfumes. And the defendant had a list of its different scents and it listed them um, by reference to the famous trademark. It said, you know, this particular product smells like Chanel number five. And it had its own brand name. Like it had, you know, it had, yeah. it, 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 you know, midnight, whatever. Uh, and then yeah. it says, compare it to Chanel number no. five. So they've got their a mark of their own and they've got a standard of uh, 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 an experiential comparison they want to invoke. It just happens to be they invoke it using the trademark. What else would you call it, by the way? But and the court says, yeah, that's fine. Over Chanel's strenuous, <laughs> very upset objection. Absolutely. Because, you know, Chanel took the position that we were talking about earlier. Chanel's saying, you know, we invested tremendous resources in developing, you know, the the value of this brand. And why should this other company come along and be able to kind of slough off some of our clients? But the court was persuaded that um, the it's important to consumers to be able to um, uh, become aware of competing products and imitative products. Um, that there was nothing deceptive happening here. And if the quality of this product is crappy, then it's not Chanel that's going to suffer. It's actually the imitator that's going to suffer. Um, so social value is improved um, through that kind of use. So that's exactly, Joe, that's that's a you know perfect example of a situation where a court's initial instinct might be to say, yeah, it doesn't really seem fair here. Um, but let's pay attention to the values on the other side. I think another good example is actually the internet cases. Um, you know, in the early days of the internet, um, we had a number of opinions by courts ruling in favor of trademark holders, um, in, in situations where defendants used their marks, um, 
to call attention to competing products. Um, and they made these decisions um, sometimes based on kind of flimsy assumptions about how consumers use the internet and whether consumers might be confused um, by the use. Um, and over the last maybe 15 or so years, um, scholars and advocates have worked really hard to persuade courts that it's important um, that competitors and, and sellers of complementary products and so forth have access uh, to trademarks um, in order to call attention to these other products. So if I'm doing a search, uh, you know, Eric Goldman likes to use this example. If I'm doing a search for a Nikon lens, um, Tamron, uh, a competitor who sell that sells lenses, um, should be able to purchase the right to place an advertisement um, next to the search results that calls attention to these competing products. Um, and I think this is another good example of a case where courts sort of instinctively initially were thinking it's not fair for people, the advertisers or the intermediaries to kind of make money off the use of these trademarks. But over time, they have been persuaded of the social value um, of the unauthorized use. And thinking of physical stores helps you see, especially in that internet advertising context, helps you see how goofy it would be in a way to deny uh, the competitor the, the right to, to buy an advertisement of that sort, assuming it's presented with, without any deceptiveness. Um, because, you know, think, for example, of the lenses being on the shelf at the, at the camera store, the, those things that used to exist. I guess there were still camera stores, right? Yeah. Yes, there are. <laughs> in big cities anyway, um, where you've got, you know, gosh, I wonder where I should put this other kind of lens that's the same kind but made by a different person. Well, I think I'll put it on the same shelf in the same area of the store. Uh, if the if the person who made the, the other lens came along and said, wait a minute, I object. You're using my trademark to locate your lens, mm -hmm. your competing lens. That's not fair. I think people would be like, buddy, I'm just trying to put stuff that's similar on a shelf mm -hmm. so that people who are looking for things can look conveniently in that particular location in the store. Give me a break. Um, yep. I think we'd all recognize that that was uh, not, that that was competition promoting, not competition frustrating. Yep. That's right. In, in, the, in the way that consumers should value and that, and therefore that uh, policymaker should, um, Facilitate. It's funny how the descriptive story you guys are telling relies so heavily on demonstrating competing values that outweigh this this uh, kind of central morality tale of the laborer <laughs> who deserves his or her labor, you know, the Lockean story. And and the way to convince courts to allow these other things is to show them the, the value of the other thing, right? You, you know, it's like the it's like weighing two kinds of moralities, whereas you know, I just always go back to Brandeis and INS who says, look, unless you fall into one of these categories, it's free. Like we don't have to demonstrate any competing value on the other, any, any you know, competing moral value on the other side. You've got to fit into this category for this reason. Yeah. No, he, does, he doesn't like. And, and trademark is one of those reasons. It is one of those reasons. But what I'm saying, it's the mode of reasoning, right? It's like, you know, this is set up for these purposes. And if you fall into this purpose, you get this kind of protection. If you don't, you don't. We don't say well, you know, this is this kind of protection is a general reward for this kind of labor, for this kind of output, and we have to weigh that labor against this other kind of output. It's a very kind yeah. of like positive rather than negative framing. Man, I hear you. And, and for this reason, I've actually gotten a lot of resistance to... So, you know, in the time that I've been thinking about this article that will someday get written, um, 
I've talked to a, a bunch of different trademark scholars about it. And um, initially, um, it was greeted with a good deal of resistance because people don't want to um, give in, right? People don't want to give up um, on this idea that the law as properly defined should be more cabined. Um, but I'm kind of a pragmatist. And I think you, we have to acknowledge that whether we like it or not, judges are responding in responding to these kind of intuitive notions um, of just desserts and that we need to think in, in addition to continuing to push back, right, which is what you're suggesting. I think we need also to be um, pointing out um, the, the, the other, the, the sort of um, uh, affirmative reasons that we should be uh, valuing some of these unauthorized uh, uses. And, you know, one of those affirmative reasons, um, as Joe was suggesting a few minutes ago, just has to do with um, marketplace competition and pricing. So in the, you know, in the context of the sports teams and and merchandise, um, you know, I think it's worth pointing out to courts what the difference in prices between a competitive market for sports merchandise in which unauthorized parties are able to sell these shirts and and other stuff um, and a market in which the league or the team um, controls um, the marks. So that kind of um, argument, I think, you know, can also fall into this category of um, justifications. I'm trying to bring prices down for consumers to give them access to products that they want, you know, without deceiving them. Reminds me a little bit of Larry Lessig's mea culpa after after the loss in Eldred against Ashcroft, the copyright term extension case, right? Where mm-hmm. he's arguing that the that the term is unconstitutionally too long after the copyright extension copyright mm-hmm. term extension act. And in that mea culpa, he says, my memory of it, and I haven't read it in a long time, is that like he just couldn't make the justices feel the harm, right? That yep. and you know that sense that like yeah yeah it says what it says, and we you know Breyer's dissent goes into how there's no economic justification for life plus 70 years saying it's pennies pennies you know uh, in terms of these extensions the in terms of the value to the author but like that's not enough like because there's this inherent moral story that you that people are stealing in a way right and you have to counteract that you have to make them feel the harm of not allowing people to share and i think there's you know great wisdom in what brandeis said but but and i teach that case you know in the ip survey every year uh and because it's a wonderful case but you know let's not forget he's dissenting Right. The, the majority for right. by yeah. Justice Pitney, if if I recall, is, you know, look, you can't reap where you haven't sown. Right. So it's exactly that 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 Lockean morality it's tale. It's a theft model, right? I right. mean that, that's always lurking in, in, in these intellectual property regimes. And, right? and Holmes comes in sideways and makes a point about not giving proper credit. So he sees right. another morality tale, but it's a morality tale about who gets the praise or the blame. Yeah. Um, for for telling a particular story on the on the bulletin board in town. Um, yeah. But so so he's making an even more emphatically trademark oriented uh, yeah, yeah, uh, take on it. Yeah. But but there, all those views are represented there um, across those opinions. If you think of it that way, in all of these IP struggle, there's always a thief in the story. And in a way, like every one of these, whether it's a whether it's a particular lawsuit or whether it's a uh, an appeal over an area of law, like it's there's always a thief, whether it's a particular person or it's a general idea of you know a category of people who want to use uh, protected works, and it's always about like trying to 
like any criminal defense lawyer, I guess, trying to justify Try rebrand them. Yeah, rebrand them like that. You know, or that you know, this They're was a, a this was a Jean Valjean scenario, or right. this was a you know, or, or it's or, a Robin Hood scenario, yeah. and the and the lawman is the sheriff of Nottingham, and. So yeah. your sympathy well, should lie with the other side or I mean, there's a, there are all these stories we can try to use or just make news stories. Well, I, you know, I think there's a way to, to, to look at it slightly differently that I think combines um, Christian's impulse with the, the, the argument that, that I've been making, which is um, to to um, explain, as um, scholars have been for, for years, that this person is actually not a thief, that um, that they are not engaged in acts that um, violate the law as properly defined. And furthermore, they are promoting some social value. And I think what that does is um, instead of having the court say, yes, this is a thief, but the, the, the theft was justified, it gives the court's kind of the the motivation to try to craft the doctrine in a more limited way um, that they, they might not otherwise have that motivation. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. so it's actually encouraging the courts not to call this person a thief, but their inclination might be to call her a thief um, if they didn't um, see the social value in what she was doing. It's it's kind of a, you know, the, lurking here is this question of whether law shapes society or society shapes law and how this works out, right? Because you yeah. know, one, one account would be that that judges rhetoric as to whether this person is a thief or not, uh, uh, this idealized person, as we're talking about doctrine, is a thief or not, is responsive to whether people consider, you know, whether ordinary people would do that sort of thing, right? So I'm, I'm thinking of like farmers replanting their seeds right despite a license agreement with a mm-hmm. you know, or um or or file sharing um you know if you know a bunch of kids who file share or you are one of those kids growing up you have a very different attitude or or the ability to i don't know to to refill your own ink cartridge or you know so all of these you know s- some things seem like theft precisely because they're unusual and you can identify an owner and uh, and someone who's not an owner but that I think that's all kind of socially constructed, right? And, yeah. And yeah. So I, what I'm unsure about is like, because what you're saying is like scholars can try to reframe it. We can get opinions like Brandeis's and Holmes, which try to reframe in the Holmes's case, what the theft is and in Brandeis's case, whether there should be a theft at all and who should define it. Um, and, and we get judges writing these sorts of things. But I'm wondering if that's really effective or, or what's more effective is like, I don't know, two or three decades of Saturday Night Live doing parody commercials, right? And judges who grew up watching that suddenly mm. becoming judges like that, you know, what's yeah. actually operating to change and people's the attitudes? Can, the two can be interrelated, right? You of can course. have both. Yeah. Of course. No, absolutely. I think they complement one another. And I think, you know, the more that judges are made aware of the social value of these, um, you know, these unauthorized uses, um, because they have kind of um, infiltrated our culture, um, the more sympathetic they'll be in the courtroom and the more willing they'll be to shape doctrine in a way that, um, you know, gives credit to those uses. So, you know, I, I'm actually pretty optimistic, um, about our ability to kind of cabin some of these legal doctrines. You know, there's a lot of despair in the literature about kind of trademark law being out of control. Um, but you know, I, I, I feel, Maybe it's because I'm kind of a pragmatist, but I just feel like, you know, we need to figure out where the places are that we feel like it's out of control, why we care about those and 
you know, and, and, and start to um, be strategic, right, about uh, pointing out the costs um, associated with expansive um, rights. But, you know, your, your, um, Christian, your point about kind of culture and motivation and what, what normal people do and don't do actually is probably a nice segue into the article that you originally wanted me to talk about. <laughs> I was, was going to ask, you know, is it time to start the show? We, we, <laughs> I mean, we, we can do that. Or, you know, we could just talk about the clinics because there's yeah. all of this is sort of a segue into uh, some other part of it. I mean, it's all interrelated. I mean, it's all the Stacy show. Let's face it. That's what this is. Today. <laughs> so, so it's like whatever you want to talk about. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I was just going to observe that, you know, the piece that um, that you originally contacted me about is a little essay that I wrote um, about some um, commonalities that I have observed between uh, intellectual property law and antitrust law, um, which, you know, in some ways are flip sides of the same coin, um, you know, intellectual property um, rules. And trademark law is sometimes an exception to this, sometimes not. But, but, you know, IP rules are kind of exceptions to the competitive norm. They insulate IP rights holders from competition in certain ways um, with certain um, social welfare ob- objectives, um, whereas antitrust law is supposed to ensure competitive markets. And so they're kind of interesting to think about together sometimes. And because I've done a lot of work in intermediary liability and have in, in IP law and have also done some work in, in antitrust law over the years, I started to notice um, in the cases how courts were treating these situations where defendants were charged with uh, violating the law or violating someone's rights based on the design of their um, products. So, you know, just to kind of make it concrete in the file sharing context, for example, uh, you design your file sharing software so that uh, you're enabling people to share copyrighted files. And in the antitrust context, probably the example most people are familiar with is, um, you know, Microsoft designs its operating system to kind of bundle in the browser to make it more difficult for competing broad browsers uh, to penetrate um, the marketplace. And these are both situations in which people designed products um, in a way that had the effect of either enabling people to infringe copyright in the first case or of inhibiting competition in the browser market um, in the Microsoft case. And the courts were kind of asked to look at the design of these products and to condemn them because of their adverse effects. Um, And so this essay looks at how courts deal with these situations in these two different contexts and tries to to identify some common threads um, between them. But the reason that your prior comment made me think of this this essay is that, you know, in in the end, I think it comes down to courts' gut level reactions as to whether what they feel like this defendant is doing is kind of deliberately uh, trying to circumvent the law. So intent plays a central role in these cases. Is this, you know, basically a legitimate business trying to improve their products and offer something that has value to consumers? Or is this really someone who's 
deliberately trying to profit from copyright infringement or deliberately trying to suppress their competitors, not by offering a superior product, um, but by uh, increasing you know, barriers in artificial ways. So could a background theory here be that absent some malicious intent or some intent to violate the rules of the game, if you like, that that although there occasionally may be people who introduce things which are in fact anti-competitive or in fact, you know, unlock the ability to infringe, that that the market will roughly kind of sort those things out and they'll be those will be kind of odd examples. But but if but if you don't crack down on deliberation then the rules really don't operate. Is that, and so there's like a systematic failure and I don't know. Yeah. And you know, I call, I call the, the background rule, um, the non-interference principle. It's sort of, sort of yeah. this basic, um, assumption that, you know, parties should be able to design products however they like. Um, and that the ordinary rules of competition will bring about the best results for, for consumers. Um, and, uh, but, but there are situations where that presumption, um, you know, is violated by courts and, uh, and it tends to happen in these cases where they identify someone who is a kind of deliberately bad actor. Now, it sounds like in the, as I read the paper, another dimension, uh, in addition to the, the sort of the, the bad actor, um, feature that you were just describing is this sort of, uh, people tend to be either, uh, antitrust optimists and therefore IP pessimists, or IP optimists and therefore antitrust pessimists. Yeah, um, am I am I getting that correctly? Wait, do you want to explain that? I mean, why would what you mean by those terms? The, well, I, I think the as I took her to be describing them, the reason that they would be related in that way is is her first observation, which is that IP and antitrust are in many senses flip sides of each other, right? Yep. Um, and I teach both. Um, and I certainly think of them that way and teach them that way. Be- because IP restricts competition. Correct. It gives you a monopoly. Uh, uh, IP, IP grants for- monopolies. and yeah. IP forbids competition. Antitrust insists on it. Right. It, and, and, and there are great reasons for doing both those things depending on the circumstances. Um, it just happens that the reasons for insisting on competition are far more prevalent <laughs> and far more important right, than the right. reasons for preventing it, in my opinion uh, and, and my experience. But, but – uh, <laughs> uh, so we can we can try to categorize you then, Joe. <laughs> right. Well, I don't think I don't think it will take any effort at all. I am I am very much an antitrust optimist and an IP pessimist. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Though I, I that to me that was the most interesting um, thing that I observed in putting together this essay, and you know, and and looking at there aren't that many commentators who have written in both of these spaces about these issues, mm. but. Um, but those that have tend to fall into one or the other of those camps. Yeah, I, I liked it a lot. It's why it, it stood out to me in the papers because I, I, I thought it was a very interesting insight and observation. And I think you, you, you get it only when, as you did here, you pull together the fact that, wait a minute, there's a, there's a thing that happens in both IP cases and antitrust cases, but we seem to be approaching it in a different way depending on which doctrinal area we think we're talking about. Yep. Um, and, and so it was a, re- it's a very, um, fun and interesting essay. It, if, uh, if people can't oh, already thanks. tell that, I think that <laughs> <laughs> after I get this other article finished, I'm actually hoping to turn to it again and develop it a little bit more. It does seem like a very important thing for courts to figure out when they're willing, uh, w- w- to be able to self-consciously engage on the questions of second guessing, uh, 
private firms design choices for technology. Um, the yep. issue is actually very old. I mean, uh, you can think about the Sony uh, uh, home taping case as being a case about whether Sony should have included the record feature on its technology, right? That's a technological yep. design choice. Um, uh, the old Berkey photo case that you cite, uh, this is a case about whether it's okay for a camera producer and a film make, uh, p- person who makes film uh, to change the sizes and formats of that film without giving sufficient notice to other people in the industry who tend to imitate on those dimensions and, and formats for, for cameras and film. Um, and the court there concluded that that uh, that was not required. They could innovate without respect to that sort of giving a, a sort of adequate notice by the other person's lights. Um, and so these issues are kind of pervasive and longstanding. Mm-hmm. And so it's remarkable that courts are as bad at talking about it as they are. And as all over the place as they are. Right. I, and <laughs> I think it's, you know, one of the interesting things to me has been to uh, to look at the different approaches taken by different courts. There's not even an acknowledgement really of the difference of approach, especially in the antitrust context. Um, you know, courts kind of do what they um, feel like doing, and they cite the precedent that seems to support their um, preferred outcome. And <laughs> so right. But I guess antitrust law, you know, is, is sufficiently flexible, right, to give courts the ability to do that. Yeah, well, the, I mean, the Supreme Court at least has said that literally the Sherman Act is a common law delegation. Yep. So it, it truly is a common law system. It seems like if the character in the trademark discussion we had was the was the thief, when you're trying to figure out the thief, like the, maybe the character here is like the bully. Like, you know, are are you acting, you know, and, and the difficulty is figuring out whether, like, you know, the person's powerful, right? So Microsoft in the, you know, in the Internet Explorer right. built-in case, like, you know that they're powerful. They're also operating in a field in which you are non-expert and, where the future is notoriously hard to see. If you could see it right. well, you might not be a judge. Maybe you'd you'd have your own startup, right? <laughs> so, uh, so, and, and you're trying to figure out, like, because they're powerful, of course they can be a bully, right? And, and they right. can they can do things for for reasons, you know, meant to maximize their own long term power, which may include kicking somebody for no other reason, immediate reason, but to kick them, like to perpetuate that power, you know, punitive measures on suppliers and others, and. But in the in the context of uh, of of tying and, and and this, it does seem like you're trying to figure out whether they are a bully in the sense that um, like they're it's not exactly that they're taking everyone's lunch money and stuffing them in a locker, but by including their own <laughs> their own browser. Right? The question was, is this the technological way forward, which would occur in a competitive market anyway, or are they? you know, amassing more power. I don't know if I'm saying this, amassing more power to themselves in a way which is like malicious. Because bullies are allowed to innovate and they're encouraged to innovate and, um, you know, and they often do innovate. And so, um, the, 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 it's really hard for courts, right? Because sometimes, um, products that are in fact improvements, um, you know, often have the effect of, um, raising barriers to entry for, competitors. And that's perfectly legitimate, right? So the, the trick in the Microsoft case um, was, and, and this was a case where the court was really willing to, you know, lift the hood and, you know, look inside. Um, it was the fact that Microsoft had kind of intermingled the code in a way that made it 
um, really difficult for people to remove its browser and replace it with a competing browser. And that intermingling didn't seem to have um, any justification. Any other benefit. Right, Right, any benefit, any consumer benefit. It seemed only to... Uh, promote the anti-competitive goals. Um, and so, but, but you know, that's a rare case where you can point to a product um, improvement and point to sort of one um, decision that was made by the monopolist um, that has no justification, doesn't improve the product in any way, and, uh, you know, has only anti-competitive effects. Yeah, but on the IP side, you point to Grokster, the Grokster case, right, which is the yeah. post, post-Napster this is um, BitTorrent-like, but not BitTorrent, but this is, you know, um, uh, distributed file sharing where they don't maintain a central server. And so all they did was create a software product that other people could use. That maybe they did some more stuff, but... Uh, but the, <laughs> maybe they did a lot more stuff. They, well, they, I mean, aimed in, at fostering infringing behavior in terms of centralization. Yeah. So, but most of most of the stuff that they did, which was actionable, was, well, it was all. This is all the court agreed on. It was it was inducing uh, the um, uh, infringing, you know. Um, uh, uh, infringing behavior of its users. And they concluded this by looking at like the way that they advertised, um, the way, uh, maybe some internal emails, uh, and then looking, like you say, at, the, at their business model. Yeah. It's focused on intent, right? It's, it's yeah. this, this intent point as well, that, that it seemed like, um, their, their principal goal here was to enable infringement. And, um, you know, while we think of inducement, you know, the, the, the word inducement um, seems to suggest active steps to encourage, um, but in fact, um, you know, and I, I discussed this in, in, in the piece, in fact, the facts that the court looks at in that case as supporting a finding of inducement are really focused on intent, on kind of ferreting out what, what this defendant's intent was and whether it really intended to, you know, create this legitimate product that might have the effect of enabling infringement on the one hand, or whether it really was trying to facilitate infringement on the other. Um, you know, that just coming back to what, what Joe was talking about a few minutes ago with the, um, the antitrust optimists and IP pessimists and putting that together with Christian's point about bullies. Um, I think part of the issue is that different people in different parts of the academy and the sort of legal system, judges and, and advocates, um, have a different sense of um, who the good guys and bad guys are. So someone who might be an antitrust optimist and an IP skeptic would probably de- describe a lot of IP holders as bullies and would describe um, a lot of um, monopolists, um, people who have or may have market power as as bullies. Um, and that suggests that when they come into, when they sort of um, think about litigation involving IP holders against upstart technology developers, that their sympathies lie with the upstart technology developers. Um, right, because and, they're the ones who are introducing or reintroducing uh, sharper and more pointed market forces that are going that through competition are going to help us sift ourselves into the whatever the new equilibrium is. 
Yep. And you are obviously an IP skeptic. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's the viewpoint, right? And, um, and yet in the antitrust context, when a monopolist is introducing what the monopolist characterizes as a product improvement, these people are sort of inclined to um, approach it with skepticism, you know, to say, let's think about its impact on upstarts, right, on people who are trying to make this overall marketplace more robust and competitive, right? Whereas the flip side that, you know, the, the, the other class of people who are um, IP optimists and antitrust skeptics, um, you know, tend to buy into uh, the kind of neoclassical economic model of IP protection that we need um, incentives to um, encourage people to uh, develop uh, valuable products, valuable expression. And some of these people would even extend that to uh, valuable brands. Um, and that um, intermediaries and others who are kind of deliberately creating technologies that prevent the ability of these people to enforce their IP rights um, are bad guys. Right. So yeah. the good guys and bad guys are just flipped um, in this worldview. And um, in the antitrust context, um, the people who have invested their resources in becoming market leaders um, are themselves entitled to some freedom and flexibility to you know, continue to provide products that their clients, that their customers want. And so they tend to come into these cases trusting that you know, over the medium to long term, the, the market is going to do its job that that, um, you know, even market leaders um, will eventually be disrupted um, and that we should not, um, you know, question in, in the vast majority of cases, we shouldn't question the decision of these successful market actors um, uh, on how to uh, design their products. I realized I should have, I, as soon as I said bully, I was also thinking about another example, another stock character, which is the mafia, right? Because the, the mafia, you know, doesn't play by the rules and yet amasses power anyway. So, uh, oftentimes, maybe almost always generating no positive social product to go along with it. And, and sometimes they have market power. Uh, they have power in the, you know, over a neighborhood or something like that, protection money. You can think about control. And other times they're just engaged in businesses which siphon things off without market power. And that, and so it's kind of like what you're trying to figure out is, is this an actor who's playing by the normal rules? And the normal rules in IP is kind of the normal story, right? You get rewarded with a monopoly for innovation, but you, subject to some constraints. Um, and, and people need to obey those constraints. And so the, the, the non-rule player in the IP field is like your grokster, right? Who's like just making money in in a, in a world of ideas, but not playing by any of the rules of ideas, like a, the normal story. So I'm, I'm just trying to think of how the mind is like perceiving these actors and in, in sorting them into good guy and bad guy. Yeah. And, and, and you can see the powerful mafioso in, you know, by tying your browser together or something like, maybe you could do that. Right. Or, or in like creating, creating this uh, device, which basically, uh, you know, lets you unlock any door in the neighborhood and go in and rob things. Like, you know, there's, there are many different kinds of like, like, like bad guy criminal enterprises that are like non-rule respecting. That seems to be like what's, if I had to like tie these two things together, I'm thinking out loud here, obviously, because it's the only mm -hmm. way that I think right now, but mm -hmm. um, that, that there is a, that there's a standard story, 
of what's supposed to happen in the competitive marketplace, right? Which you just, it's what people do around here. These are, you know, they, they will undercut prices of their competition, but they won't break each other's kneecaps. Like that, you know, like one is the standard story of competition. The other is like a deviation from the standard story of competition. Mm -hmm. And so too, in the IP field, right? There's a, there's a good kind of innovation which gets rewarded and that needs to be respected. And, you know, does that, yeah, yeah, I think it captures what's happening. I mean, it's hard because it's so intuitively driven and that's not very satisfying for those of us who like, um, some level of certainty, um, in, uh, you know, in predictability in legal rules. But I think, um, you know, I think that does capture some of what's, happening in both of these contexts. Well, it sounds like there are many narratives that are available uh, that that fit to a greater or lesser degree, and that part of, part of what advocates are doing is, you know, trying to marshal the narrative that best suits them in, on a given occasion and, and to dance away from the one that they know hurts them. It's turning into a law and literature show, isn't it, Joe? Right, which is, a, <laughs> which is yet another segue uh, to this uh, the discussion about the, the new clinics uh, yeah, at so BU, because I would think that part of what students uh, are, are trying to do there is um, l- learn from the people who are bringing them these these projects that, that about which they need advice but also trying to figure out uh, how to convey to various decision makers uh, the right way to think about what is new in some respects but has to be processed using familiar concepts if it, it's to be understood uh, at the yes. outset so what so tell us about these two clinics so they're pretty new and you and you have been helping with them they are part of a broader initiative here at BU Law that um, involves a lot of interdisciplinary work around law and technology issues um, with the goals that you are talking about, right? We, you know, we're, we're trying to work with computer scientists at BU as well as at MIT to understand better um, a lot of the legal issues confronting judges involving law and technology. And our goal is to try to better inform, right, judges and advocates and and, and others. Um, so, you know, I can talk about um, the broader initiatives as well, but, but, um, but let's start with the um, clinics, because I do think that they're really um, exciting and interesting. So we, this all started, um, you know, maybe three years ago, um, when we began a series of discussions with people over at MIT who were concerned that their students were sometimes finding themselves in legal messes um, (laughs) for which it wasn't clear um, who should represent them. Mm. Um, You know, they were, you know, the students, uh, (laughs) for those of you who are familiar with MIT, MIT students like to get themselves into various forms of mischief. (laughs) They had done so in, in a couple different um, cases where if they had had someone to go and talk to um, beforehand, they might have had a better sense of strategy, right? So one example um, was a case in which some MIT students as part of a hackathon figured out a way to reverse engineer the Charlie card, which is the um, the card that you use to get into the uh, mass transit system here oh my. in Boston. <laughs> 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 and, um, you know, they, they were um, 
preparing to go to a um, conference, a sort of hacking conference, where they, at the title of their presentation was Free uh, Tea Rides for Life. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so See, speaking the, and, speaking of stock characters, right? right? Like what, speaking of narratives, but, but that's one where that's one where people of a certain age will think William Broderick in in War Games, and it's kind of the sympathetic antihero in a way. And other people will say, "Oh my God, this is so irresponsible." And yeah, right. And, and yeah. both are kind of true, maybe. Yeah, well, you know. But the, the reality is, this is incredibly valuable encryption research. That totally. The, you know the the um, the transit authority should. Um, should welcome and everybody, you know, this, this should be viewed as helpful ultimately. Right. But, um, yeah, they should know that security vulnerability exists. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, um, but you know, at the time the students didn't really have anyone to turn to and, and, um, the MBTA ended up bringing a temporary restraining order, a motion for a TRO. And Mm. so it, it was situations like this that, um, led the MIT administration to think um, it would be awfully nice if we could have a legal resource um, for our students that is not the institution itself, right? Because there can, in some situations, be either conflicts of interest or at least tensions between Mm. um, MIT's institutional um, objectives and those of of the students. Um, Or at least the appearance of that. That's right. That's right. That, yes. Um, and so we started a series of conversations with them, um, about what the legal needs of their students, um, were. And, um, you know, it was, it was really interesting and it turned out that they had two different sets of, um, needs. One of them was focused on this, exactly this kind of counseling of students around, um, research and, um, other extracurricular activities that might raise legal risks. Um, and they wanted to have a resource available to their students to kind of um, educate them about those risks um, and help to inform them about um, the law um, and potentially also to engage in some law reform efforts. So that's kind of one piece of it. But there was a whole separate piece of it that emerged um, where it became clear that um, MIT students um, had an interest in legal advice around entrepreneurship. Um, there are tons of um, nonprofits and other business enterprises that are starting up over there, that students are starting up, that are, they're interested in forming, and um, they need legal advice. Um, and law firms have historically um, you know, held office hours, over at their various entrepreneurship centers and, and have filled some of that need. Um, but, you know, some of these firms um, offer services in exchange for deferred fee arrangements. Mm. Um, and in some cases, um, those services weren't necessarily either available or totally satisfactory for the students. And so um, so we eventually decided to start up two clinics um, and one of them is focused on um, entrepreneurship and intellectual property. Um, and I'll talk about the IP piece of it in a minute. But the And the other one is called the Technology and Cyber Law Clinic, which is focused more on these kind of cutting edge research questions and advising students on, um, you know, risks uh, associated with their um, innovations and experimentation. Um, and we have um, the, the, the entrepreneurship 
an IP clinic um, formed two years ago. So it has now just finished its second year of operation. And the Technology and Cyberlaw Clinic um, just finished its first year um, of operation. And um, they've both been tremendously popular, um, both on both sides of the river, you know, both among our students and uh, among the MIT students um, who are, you know, thrilled to have someone to talk to. Some of some of the um, work is just in consultations where they come in and, and just want to kind of brainstorm. Um, and some of it is in um, actually doing the legal work of um, founding um, a, a, a partnership or a corporation, um, you know, um, uh, helping students to draft articles of incorporation, giving them some kind of general intellectual property advice. Um, we don't prosecute patents, um, but we have a referral network um, uh, of lawyers in town who will um, work with students in the event to kind of give them initial um, patent counseling and then um, uh, in some cases represent them in patent prosecution going forward. Um, so it's been um, it's been really exciting, um, and we have an, an oversight board of um, I'm on the oversight board, and we've got um, folks from both BU and MIT, and we meet on a monthly basis to talk about the issues confronting the clinic and to try to kind of shape um, clinic policies. And um, so that's interesting. I, the you're, you're both both institutions are participating in the in the governance. That's right. That's right. But, but but not operationally. I guess BU is just doing a okay. That's right. That's right. We are very mindful and respect respectful of um, uh, the attorney client privilege. Um, you know, we we do not discuss uh, particular um, cases or or issues, um, except to the extent that that might be um, either either the student client has um, volunteered to make their information available or, um, you know, the information is, is publicly, um, available. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's just been tremendous. So what drew you to this board as someone who (laughs) does all the things that you do and knows all the things that, you know, um, in many ways it's right up your alley, but, but of course I'm sure it's a lot of work and, uh, a lot of effort. Yeah. And it's part of the reason that this article that we were talking about earlier has not yet been written, but, um, you know, I went to MIT. Oh, um, I did not know that. Yep. I went there as an undergrad. Um, and I'm also just, um, I'm, I'm involved in a lot of, um, a lot of the interdisciplinary, um, conversations that I was referring to earlier. I'm very interested in the intersection of law and technology and trying to get, um, players, get you know, to get people from these different perspectives to come together and try to understand one another um, better so that we can make informed recommendations um, to policymakers and judges. Um, I think there's too little of that. And I think um, it's uh, a really exciting opportunity. So I just, you know, I just thought it'd be really interesting. And, um, you know, there were several of us involved at different stages in these conversations. And I just found myself drawn in because it seemed like such an exciting initiative. Were you into policy as an undergrad or, or do you look back and think, boy, I wish I had known more about well, the law I was when I was yeah. major. I was, you know, course okay. 14, as we would say at MIT. <laughs> um, 
so and I also took some um, political science courses. I was I was definitely interested in kind of the intersection between um, sort of theory and uh, policy, um, both from a an economics perspective and a broader kind of science and technology perspective. See, so I, just assume, I assume everybody, even if you're in economics or, you know, everyone there is building robots in their dorm rooms. But, uh, <laughs> but, but is there, is there a culture there? It's just a, a robot economist. Yeah, yeah. Are, are there people, I have never built a robot in my life. I'm it, kind of ashamed to say. Are there, um, is there a culture there of, of, of kids on the econ and policy side working in collaboration with kids on the engineering side to, start new ventures or are people kind of siloed? How, what's the, yeah, what's the culture no, there? there is some, but I, you know, and I think that initiatives like the one that we're engaged in will encourage that even more. Um, you know, I think we're still in the early stages of this, but, um, but we've talked about all sorts of different possibilities like getting, um, into a classroom together, um, you know, some of the econ policy people, some of the technology people and some of the law people to talk about um, some of these issues from all sorts of different perspectives. Um, already we have um, we have speaker series where um, our clinical faculty and our students in many cases um, give talks to the MIT community on issues of interest to um you know, to, to sort of technology um, hackers and to um, entrepreneurs um, and, you know, all sorts of different um, people coming from different perspectives around campus. And, and those are pretty popular. Um, and, you know, I imagine it's going to continue. That kind of cross-fertilization will, will continue to grow. You know, uh, not too long ago, we had James Grimmelman on to talk about the Google Books antitrust settlement. And uh, and we talked to him a little bit about the stuff he's doing at the new Cornell campus in New York City that is, yeah. that is in many ways, has some, some similarities to the sorts of things you're describing. I think it's a great time for these projects to... Um, to, and such a great opportunity for law students to have the chance to talk to people in these other domains of practice that, that um, need help, uh, need to understand uh, what some of the legal rules and standards are, uh, and the law students need to begin to learn how to communicate those things to those people in a way that's helpful to them, and also be able to hear from those people what their lives are really like so they can understand how to make the law work better for them. I just think it's a great possibility. I. 100% agree. It's been it's been really really exciting. Um So thanks for asking about it. Cool. Well, thank you for joining us. This has been wonderful, Stacy. It's gone all kinds of places that we couldn't have predicted. <laughs> I know. Which is, which I is always it. cool. Happens with you guys. <laughs>